Some people seem to move almost effortlessly from planning into action, but appearances can be deceiving. It all comes down to having a process that works for you. I'm your host, M. David Green. Hack the Process is a show about looking at the systems and processes that we build our lives around to support mindful, meaningful progress. This show explores ways that people get past that pivot point, from having a fantasy to putting something real out there into the world. If you're ready to stop planning and fantasizing and start taking action, let's hack the process together. You know that one unobtainable thing that you need? You might be able to get it just by asking, according to Dr. Wayne Baker. His new book, All You Have to Do is Ask, can tell you why it works and show you how to do it based on years of research and work in the field of generalized reciprocity. In this episode of Hack the Process, Dr. Baker will tell us how he structures his time to put writing at the start of his day, what surprised him about his initial research into generosity, and why it's important to communicate the meaning of your request for help. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Wayne Baker. He's a professor at the University of Michigan and the author of a new book called All You Have to Do is Ask. Dr. Baker, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well. That's excellent. I'm doing well too, and I'm excited to meet you. And I love the simplicity of the title of your book. Could you dig into that a little bit and tell us what you're getting at? Yes, it's a simple title, and it, it's a little bit more complicated than the title would convey or imply, because there is a way in which you need to ask, so that it's a powerful ask. You have to figure out what your goals are, the requests that you need to achieve those goals. I have criteria, the five criteria of a well-formulated request, and then you have to figure out who to ask and how to ask them. But the core of the idea is that most people are willing to help, but they only help if you ask them. And most people don't ask for what they need. And there's a lot of reasons why people are reluctant to ask. Uh, we can go into some of those if you would like. But you know that really is the key. It turns out to be the key to generosity is getting people to ask. Unless people are mind readers, no one knows what you need. <laughs> I, I, I love that optimistic view of society that most people really are willing to help if you ask. Yeah, well, you know, that's based on a lot of experience that we've had over the last 20 or 25 years. For example, Cheryl Baker and I developed the reciprocity ring activity about 20 years ago. And it's a structured, facilitated activity for groups where people make a request for something that they need, and then they will spend most of their time trying to help other people meet or fulfill their requests. And back then, I thought that getting people to help, to be generous, is going to be the problem. Rarely, if ever, was the problem. The real problem was getting people to ask for what they need. That was the crux. That was the real sticking point. And I shifted from focusing on the need to be generous to focus on the need to ask, to make requests for what you need. And then people were very generous in response. And I've just seen that time and time again. There's been, oh, I think we're well over 150,000 people around the world have done it in 12 different languages. And we run into the same thing. It's getting people to ask. And it's the asking that drives the whole process of giving and receiving. So it sounds like the challenge, and this comes from all of this research that you've done with all of these different people, the challenge may be getting people to know what they want to ask and then frame it in a way that people can understand. Yeah, part of it is knowing what you want to ask. So I have three different methods in the book. One is called the uh, quick start method. It's a number of sentence uh, starters. For example, one is, you know, one of my urgent tasks is to fill in the blank, and I need to then fill in the blank. Another one would be that one of the biggest challenges in my life is to would answer that, and I would benefit from, and then the answer that. And that gives you a sense of what you're trying to accomplish and also what you need. Maybe it's information, advice, 
ideas, a sounding board, emotional support, political support, money, whatever it might be. And then from that, you could make a request for that particular resource. That's interesting. I'm curious what kind of resistance you run into when you introduce that idea to people. Well, people do resist because there are a lot of reasons why people are reluctant to ask. And so when I provide an introduction, either for my students or when I'm consulting, I was at a company just last week in Indiana, and I was talking to a a group of uh, 70 new hires at this biomedical company. And I go through the reasons why people are reluctant to ask. For example, people fear that they'll appear to be incompetent, or they can't do their job, or they weren't well-educated, or they're ignorant, or they're weak. But there's research that shows that that's actually not true as long as you make a thoughtful request. There's some research that's come out of a team from Harvard and Wharton where they've established that as long as it's a thoughtful request, an intelligent request, people will think you are more competent, not less. So that's one. Another would be that we often ask because we figure no one can help us. No one is willing or able to help us. And there's been a number of experiments and studies done now that have shown that, in fact, most people are willing to help if they're asked, you know, but people don't ask because they fear they're going to appear to be incompetent. They don't ask because they fear or concern that no one will be able to help them. And those are just two of the several reasons why people are reluctant to ask. But the research shows that the opposite is actually true. So part of this is education. Part of that is the awareness and insight. And with that, to give yourself permission to ask. Now, the, the work that you've done around this, has this been mostly inside or outside of business or personal life? Where do you focus your attention when you're doing this? Well, I'm in the business school at the University of Michigan, so most of it is in business organizations, but I've worked with a a variety of them, with associations, nonprofits, students everywhere from undergraduate students up to uh, MBA and doctoral students. And the themes that I'm talking about and I write about in the book are seem to be universal. We've also encountered these in organizations around the globe that we've worked with. I think we're hardwired to help. I think we're hardwired to be generous. Some things can get in the way, but the main thing that gets in the way is people asking for what they need. Hmm. I'm glad to hear that this is something that works in the business world and in the and in our personal lives as well. And I'm really intrigued that you're finding it uniform across different countries. Yeah, you know, people would say, for example, well, the activities that you write about in the book, they would never work in, you know, fill in the blank. And they would name a country in Asia or Europe or the Middle East or South America. But we have examples from every continent, every kind of culture that shows that they will work. You know, for example, in Asian societies, the research shows that people are reluctant to make a personal request because it appears that they're putting their individual needs above group needs. But if you do one of our group activities, you've now turned it from an individual request into a group project. You're required to make a request. Otherwise, you're letting the group down. Yeah, so one of the reasons the tools work is it kind of shifts in those cultures to a um, we're making a request and helping one another has become a group task, almost a requirement of group participation. Where in a more individualistic society, say, say many Western societies, we don't encounter the sort of the same context. But again, it all hinges on the request and how you frame that request. I love that it's adapting itself to different contexts. And I'm curious, to what was it that inspired you more than 20 years ago to get into the research and start working with these ideas? Well, it's a conversation I had with my wife about 20, 25 years ago, um, <laughs> where, <laughs> where she said, well, you teach your MBA students how to analyze their social networks. That's one of the things that I was taught to do as a, as a sociologist in graduate school. She says, that's great, but what do you tell them to do? How do they build their networks? Or how should they use their networks? And I said, well, you know, I have a couple of stories and some anecdotes, and I hope that I'm going to run out of time because I don't have a whole lot. And so we talked a little bit more, and I said, well, you know, 
If you think about our networks as social capital, a productive resource, social capital is defined as networks plus generalized reciprocity, which is a nice academic term. But what that means is, so one form of reciprocity, David, would be that you help me and I help you, which is fine. That's ethical. And we would want that to happen. But another is that you help me and I feel grateful. And therefore, I'm motivated to pay it forward and help a third person. And it starts a kind of a chain of indirect reciprocity or this more generalized kind of reciprocity. And so she said to me, well, you know, can you give me some examples of generalized reciprocity? And I, I mentioned, uh, you know, a couple that I knew, and that was the beginning. From that, we developed a prototype of the reciprocity ring. I tested it and we refined it. And pretty early on, we hit upon the formula or the recipe for making that activity work. Since then, people have said to me, okay, this is great. It's a wonderful activity, but what else can we do? So over the last number of years, I've been collecting examples, different tools, different practices, different routines that people use at work in order to create that same process that would help people to ask and help people to give, usually in a group setting. And so that's what the book is about. It's a toolbox, if you will, of here's all the ways that you as an individual, as a member of a team or the leader of an organization can really get people to tap all the resources that are out there and to give and get help from one another. Now, that's really interesting. So the concept is generalized reciprocity. It sounds like you identified a model in which it works, but you also recognized ways in which it's happening spontaneously. And you've started identifying some of those. And that's part of the book as well. That's right. And again, people have said, well, you know, how do we do it? They say, okay, you've motivated me. You've convinced me that it's important to ask and that it's important to be generous. And again, I always stress that you want to be both what I call a, a giver requester, that you freely give, generously give, and you make requests when you need something. I said, that's, that's what you want to be. But they say, okay, well, what can we do in my group? And they say, well, here's the kind of things that have been done. I'll give you another quick example. It's widely used in software development and IT firms. It's called the daily stand-up. So there's a, a firm in town here I know is one of many that use it. But this is, a, this is a procedure that can be used in, I think, any kind of work setting. You know, at 10 o'clock in the morning, all the programmers stand up in a big circle. There's about 50 of them, and they quickly go around, and each one answers three questions. What did I work on yesterday? What am I working on today? And what do I need help on? And the help is given later on. And what that does is that it makes the process of asking routine. You're expected to make your request. That's what it means to be a part of this group, a part of this standup. And they quickly go around and it doesn't take very long. And what it does is that it brings out what people need and it brings out the, all the ways that other people can help. That's a beautiful way to frame that. And for context, I'm a technical agile coach and I work with engineering teams, helping them develop their extreme programming practices. And one of those practices is that daily standup. And one thing that I've never heard anybody say specifically is that that third question is about asking for help. It's usually about recognizing what the impediments are and acknowledging those. But when you frame it as asking for help, that's actually what's happening in the meeting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when I advise a, a company that wants to use it, I, I say just what you said, that the, it's usually about what the impediments are, which is an implicit request for help. And I say, don't make it implicit, make it explicit. You know, say, you know, say those three things. What I work on yesterday, working on today, and what do I need help on? What are my needs? I think that really, really unlocks all of the resources that exist in the firm. That's fascinating. So this, this started off with a conversation with your wife. Does she have a background in this as well? Or was this something she was researching? She has a background in psychology and sociology. So a lot of overlap with my background. She's never been in an academic setting. She does organizational development work. She's also one of the co-founders of our company called Give and Take Inc., 
which creates technologies based on the tools and principles I talk about in the book. That's excellent. What sorts of technologies are those then? How, how does that work with when you're offering technology to a company around these things? Well, we've developed an application called Givitas. If you think about a combination of giving and civitas together, so you have community and giving, which takes the idea of the reciprocity ring, as I described, is this process of asking for what you need and then generously helping other people meet their requests to meet their needs. And people always said to us, okay, this is great. We're all together in the same room doing the reciprocity ring. Incredible things have happened. We've got the resources, we save money, we generate revenue, whatever it might be. But now we have to go back to you know the four corners of, of the globe. How can we continue this process? Can you do it with the technology? So back in 2016, we founded this company. We've got 12 full-time employees now. My wife is works full-time with them. I'm an advisor to the company. And it's that process, but writ large. So we'll have groups of 1,000, 2,000 people spread all over the place. And, it, and it's a very, very purpose-directed software. It's for a particular purpose, which is getting people to ask for what they need and then enabling them to help one another. And then, of course, since it's in a, it's in a digital environment, Everything is kept, so everything is searchable, and you can see you know, what requests need help, what urgent requests are coming up. If somebody helps you, you can click a box and you'll get a little note of gratitude will show up as a text on your phone or in your email. So we've learned a lot about how to incorporate a lot of positive psychology in it as well. Are these usually limited to people who share some commonality, or is this something that's open to anybody who just wants to join and help? We've toyed with a second idea, but it seems to work best. And what we're focusing on now is that it, it has to be a group of people who have something in common. So we have a very large group it's, that is composed of human resource directors from all these different companies, which, you know, they've got, it could be that I'm working as a problem in human resources in my company that has already been solved three other places. I just don't know where it is. But if I can post my request, I'll find where those are. There'll be a couple of people out there who will respond to me. So yeah, they usually have to have something in common, could be common membership in an association. Sometimes we take a newsletter and we turn it into a give a community. That's another way of, of doing it. And then it's done in an enterprise as well, where there would be a, a corporation that wants to use the technology in order to really create this whole process of giving and getting help from one another. I can see social groups adopting something like this easily, but I can see corporations maybe having some hesitancy about it maybe breaking down the hierarchical structure of the company because it kind of creates tangents that where people can communicate, share with each other. I'm curious what comes up around that. Well, you know, that's, that's a very good insight. There is a, an informal organization behind the formal organizational chart, and this is really about the informal organization and empowering that. I think enlightened leaders see that it's a really good thing, but more traditional ones might be a little resistant to the idea because they, they feel that it might undermine the traditional hierarchy. But the traditional hierarchy just doesn't fit the world of work that we're in now. You know, you need more, you need more agile organizations. You need to be able to, uh, you know, to tap the wisdom of the crowd. And so a tool like Givitas or the Reciprocity Ring or some of the others that I write about in the book really do tap the wisdom and the resources of the crowd. And I think that's a, a far superior way of getting the resources. So you have to sell the organization on the on the greater advantages of, of leveraging the resources of this much broader cross hierarchical organization that, that exists under the under the surface. Yeah, and so we have calculated the return on investment for these tools, and it's actually it's in some cases it's astronomical, the kind of money that people can save or the revenue they can generate. And I can give you one quick example that will make it concrete. So I use these tools with a drug development team for a large pharmaceutical company in New Jersey. So it's a group of scientists, and one scientist said, 
I'm about to pay an outside vendor $50,000 to synthesize a particular alkaloid. I discovered later that alkaloids come from plants and could be used to make drugs. They said, but I'm about to pay all this money. I'm looking for a cheaper alternative. Well, somebody else who was in the group that day said, huh, I had no idea you had that need. Why? Because people don't routinely ask for what they need. He said, but you know, I have slack capacity in my lab. I could do it for you next week for free. It'll save you 50,000 and we'll save our employer 50,000. I have one example of a South American auto parts manufacturer who used some of these tools. And they said in one session, and this is going to sound unbelievable, but they said in one session, they documented at least $10 million in revenue generation because of the uh, resources that they had shared. People had made a request and people had the answer that they needed and it made all the difference in a pitch to a client. How many people are typically involved in a session like that? Well, if we, it depends on the tool. So if we do the reciprocity ring, it's designed for groups of 24. But if we have large groups, for example, we had 900 MBAs from Harvard Business School do it all at the same time. And we divided it into groups of about 40 and we had a trained facilitator run each one. So the face-to-face activity is scalable as long as you have enough space and enough trained facilitators. Uh, but of course, the Givitas technology is not limited by space or time because it's a it's a digital platform and you can have much larger groups. And it's also asynchronous. So people don't have to be on at the same time either. So a request could be posted you know, tonight and I might see it tomorrow morning and be able to respond to it. Does the technology also involve some sort of facilitator? It doesn't, but it does involve what I call informal champions. We found that's a necessary ingredient, that you want to have a few champions that will kind of seed the platform to get it going. Because again, people are hesitant at first to ask. And so people will go into the platform and register and they're waiting for someone to make a request, right? Because everyone's a little bit reluctant to do it. I call it the empty restaurant problem. You know, you're walking down the street, a restaurant you've never been to before, looks intriguing from the outside. You look in the window, but no one's there. Are you going to be the first one to go in? No, you want to see some people in there first before you go in. So we find it's important that we'll have a small group of champions who will seed the platform with real requests so that when people start registering en masse, they'll see requests there already. And, you know, I've actually used the technology in the writing of this book. So I'm a member of a couple of different Givitas communities. And when I needed a new example of something, I would I'd post a request saying, I'm writing a book. It's called All You Have to Do is Ask. And I need an example of X. And it was amazing. I met so many people that way that I had never known who were so generous in their help. And I actually acknowledge all of them in the book uh, for helping me out. You know, I, I actually start the acknowledgments to the book with, I asked a lot of people for help with this book. Because I practice what I preach, and I know for a fact the book has more examples and more practices because people were generous and responded to my requests for them. I think that there are some people who use uh, platforms like Twitter for something like that as well, although it depends on having a large number of followers so that you have access to that large community of people who might be willing to help. I think that it's less effective when you don't have that in place. I think that uh, that is very true. Also, a lot of those platforms are helpful, but they're unstructured or they're ungoverned in a way. And uh, these digital platforms that focus on giving and getting help like ours, give it to us, are very highly structured for that one particular purpose. And that seems to make a big difference as well. I can imagine. So you decided to put this information into the form of a book for people. I'm curious where that idea came from and why you felt that right now was the time for a book about this. Well, as a professor, I'm required to do two things, and it's my two loves, my two passions. 
it's research and teaching. And you're supposed to publish your research. And so when I was young, I would publish in academic journals. That's what we're supposed to do. But because I was always in a business school, you want to make the knowledge applicable, usable in the real world. And so part of my job as an educator is to do research and then bring these ideas to the classroom and to companies to make it helpful and useful in in their work lives. And so a book is one way that you do that. So you can reach many, many more people with a book than you can with, uh, say, a classroom lecture. You know, it's, it's a thing that evolved over time as well, because you don't know you have a book right off the bat. But I started to accumulate some ideas and I would keep, you know, lists of things. I had practices that I was learning about. The stand-up is one that we talked about before, but there's many others. And as I was thinking about this, I started talking about it in my classes it suddenly dawned on me. I said, I said, I think I have enough enough material here for a book. So what I did first is that I wrote up about a 75-page document and I shared it with four or five close colleagues. Some of them work in large corporations. Some of them work here at the university uh, in our business school. And they gave me a lot of feedback and a lot of encouragement saying, I think there is something here. I said, okay, well, now I have to expand that into a book form. And then it goes step-by-step step after that. I also find, you know, this might be helpful as a work habit, as a, as a writer, is that I find the, uh, the best time for me to write is in the morning. And a good day always starts with at least 15 minutes of writing, even though I have to spend the rest of the day doing something else. I always thought if I could have that little dose of writing in the beginning, then it seems like the whole day goes better. Yeah, I was curious how you structured your day because writing a book is a huge accomplishment and uh, it, it takes a lot of energy, time, attention. Sometimes people just can't find the time in their lives to make that happen. I think there's a myth of the writer who has unlimited time and can just sit and contemplate great ideas and then write them down day after day after day. When I talk to people who write books, they find that it's actually written in between all the other parts of life. And even though one of my jobs is to write and to publish books, for example, and, and articles, I have a lot of other responsibilities. I'm on committees. I'm the faculty director for our Center for Positive Organizations. You know, I have classes I have to teach. There's a lot of stuff that I have to do as well. And so one thing I find is that to make sure I start off each day writing at least a little bit. If it's a good day, I might get a couple of hours in. So I also try to structure my time so that I would teach in the afternoon or the evening and not in the morning because the morning is the best time for me to write. And even if you only do 15 minutes a day and you write a couple of sentences, well, at the end of the week, you've got a couple of paragraphs. And by the end of the month, you've got several pages. And then if you keep going, it just starts to accumulate over time. It's doing at least a little bit every day. And I think that every day is a good day to write more or less. You know, other people think that you should not have to have to have that great day of inspiration, that great day where all the stars are aligned and I'm just ready to go. But you know, I don't think it works that way. It's like you just have to keep working at it day after day after day. I have to agree with you. I can imagine you could be very prolific if you had nothing to do with your time but write. But what would you write about? You wouldn't have anything interesting to say. Right. Hey, you know, it's interesting, David. I also find urgency helps writing. Really? If I say, I got a nine o'clock meeting that I got to get to, and it's going to take me a half an hour to get there. I got my son off to school. So now I've got this 45 minutes to write. You know, and that urgency, just having that limited time, actually much more productive than if you just say you've got the whole day. I think that that's a useful hack for a lot of people. I know that that hack works for me as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was your wife involved in the writing of the book in any way? She's involved in every major project that I do. Uh, she's just wonderful. So I've, this is book number six for me. And she has read every one. 
when it was still the sausage in the making, you know, <laughs> not the nice sausage, not the nice product at the end. And she would always give me helpful feedback along the way. So I've always acknowledged her in every book that I've written. And some of the most useful feedback that she's given me was that I'm starting to lose attention here, or this is no longer interesting at this point. And I'm thinking, you know, that's okay, good. So I, as the author, I have to do something about that. You know, if, if my audience is losing attention here, it's not about the audience, it's about me holding their attention. And it would be very useful for figuring out where, where I need to do something. Plus, we just, you know, we uh, brainstorm ideas all the time. And, you know, she has helped to develop a lot of the tools, such as the reciprocity ring. And it's our shared experiences that offer reflected in the book. Uh, in fact, we've had some, I even tell some personal stories about my family and about my wife. And actually, the one, how the, the reciprocity ring actually enabled us to be on a, a guest on Emerald Live, the Food Network show. Yes. I was able to present a ring to my wife. It was an anniversary present. And it was all because of the reciprocity ring, because I was leading a big exercise for all of our incoming students. And I was doing a form of the reciprocity ring. So it's asking, giving help. And I made a request uh, because my wife always wanted to be an Emerald, Emerald Live and wanted to do that to celebrate a wedding anniversary. I didn't think it would work, but I've learned now to trust the process. And it worked. Somebody came forward. They knew somebody who was dating Emerald's daughter. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. But that one didn't work because they broke up. But the one that did work is that there was an MBA student and his wife are good friends with Emerald's segment producer for a segment he would do on Good Morning America. And one thing led to another. And we were in Manhattan. We got to meet Emerald. And we were later on later on his show on the Emerald Live and got to sample the food and even got to be on camera to present the ring. That is a fantastic story. It, it's like that six degrees of separation idea, but with substance, because there's actual outcome. Even though I wrote the book, all you have to do is ask. I have to always take my own medicine, right? Because I find it hard to ask sometimes. I think we all do. But I just have to remember the evidence that's out there is that, you know, people do want to help. You have to make a request that's a thoughtful request. You need to explain why it's important, why it's meaningful, when you need it by... And you'll find that most people are willing to help. And if they can't help you directly, they probably know someone that they can. They can tap their network. That's another form of help. That's true. Now, when I think about asking and some of the social conventions that might keep people from asking, I, I know that I can come up in my mind with a few people I know who might ask a little bit too much and might always be asking. And I'm curious where you find that balance and how that's played into your work. Yeah, there are some people who ask too much. Uh, there are some people who are takers. It's not a lot of people, but they're certainly out there. And what the research shows is that over time, they're less productive because people stop helping them. They kind of see what they're doing. They're seeing they're not paying it back. They're not helping other people. So they stop helping them over time. So in the book, I have an assessment called the Asking Giving Assessment. There's also a free online version of that. So you don't have to buy the book to take the assessment. I just have to go to the, the website. All you have to do is ask dot com and there's a free assessment and you also get to compare yourself to a population of people who have taken the assessment and it will tell you where you are on two dimensions on the giving dimension and on the asking dimension and what we found is that there are four basic types the most productive type the person who is the most highly esteemed and well regarded is the person who freely helps who freely gives and who asks for what they need they have a balance between those two but they do both frequently they're productive because they get the inflow of resources that they need. They're highly esteemed because they're so generous in the help that they give to other people. But there's three other types. One type is the taker, the person who's asking all the time and not helping very much. Uh, I have a friend of mine who used to work at IBM Consulting, and he called them sponges. 
<laughs> you know, they, they suck in everything and they never give anything back out. And over time, people stop helping them and their productivity declines. There's another type, which I call the overly generous giver. And I write about this in the book. And it's kind of a trap. It's people who are very generous. They help other people, but they don't ask for what they need. So they don't make themselves vulnerable. It's kind of safe to be there to do that. You're well regarded for your generosity, but you're not that productive and your performance suffers because you're not getting the inflow of the resources that you that you need to be productive. And then the fourth type is the lone wolf, the person who doesn't ask and the person who doesn't give. And that person is in some ways is probably the worst off of all because they're just disconnected from the network. They're disconnected from life. You know, by just trying to be a lone wolf and to try to just do it themselves. Have you noticed any qualities that lead people down one of those four paths? I think some of it comes from our educational system, which prizes individual achievement and accomplishment. So little kids are curious. They ask questions all the time, but that actually gets drummed out of them in the school system where they say that, you know, it's all about individual tests and achievement. And even though teachers will say, we want you to ask questions, it becomes harder and harder over time for people to do that. I really observed that to be the case. And so what happens is that people lose the habit or the freedom of, of asking questions, of asking for what they need, of, of asking for help. I call it the over-reliance on self-reliance. You know, it's a cultural value to be self-reliant, to not ask other people for help. It's reinforced by the educational system. Uh, that's one of the eight reasons why it's hard to ask for help. And you need to overcome that to realize that self-reliance is a virtue, but you can take it too far. And that when you over-rely on self-reliance, you're just hurting yourself. Now, I imagine that in your own career, and you've mentioned that through the reciprocity rings, you've gotten a lot of help with the things you've done. I'm curious if you've seen these concepts reflected in the work that you did perhaps before you started the business, how you got mentorship, where this developed in your own life. You know, I could trace a lot of this back to my own high school experience where I was taking a French class and I was not doing very, very well in French. I have no facility for foreign languages at all. And so I'm struggling with this. And I was intimidated by the teacher. And I talked to my dad about it. And I said, I don't know what to do. So I asked my dad for some advice. And he said, why don't you go and meet with him and ask him for help? And I was very reluctant to do that, but he encouraged me to do it. I went and talked with the teacher, explained the situation that I was trying, and it just wasn't clicking with me and asked him for help. And he softened up and he was like, he was so helpful to me. And it really made such a difference. And it wasn't that I learned more French, but I actually learned that you can ask for help. And a lot of times people will respond in a very, very positive way. And so with my with my own son, who's in who's in high school now, I've always tried to teach him to, to ask for help, but not just to ask for help, but how to do it. You know, when he asks his teacher for help, when he writes an email to a teacher or when he meets with them to explain, you know, specifically what is the kind of help that he needs? Why does he need this kind of help to show gratitude and appreciation and to follow up with the result of the help that he received? Interesting. What kinds of help do you find people have the most trouble asking for in a business context? Oh, that's an interesting question. I think it would have to be help on a personal troubling issue. I think it would have to be something like if you're you know, if you're struggling or at home or there's some issue that you have at home, maybe someone is, there's family strife or there's illness in the family that affects you and you bring that to work with you. 
people are often very, very reluctant to bring those things up and they don't feel that it's a safe environment to do it, but they actually could use help and emotional support from colleagues. And to ask for that support, I think could be very, very useful. But I think that's probably the category that people find the hardest. And otherwise, you know, if it's a technical question or you need advice, you need a sounding board, that's easier to ask for. That makes sense. In the book, do you have tips for people to help them get over those impediments that might stop them from asking for help in those situations where they might need that kind of personal support? Yes. So one chapter talks about the eight reasons why it's hard to ask for help and what we know from research. And hopefully at the end of reading that, people will be convinced that, okay, I really should do this. I'm going to give myself permission to ask. Then the next step is, okay, well, how do I figure out what to ask for and how do I ask for it and who do I ask? So that's what the next chapter would be about. So I have different exercises for figuring out what your goals are and what requests you might need to receive the resources to help to achieve those goals. And then the next step would be, how do you formulate that into a request. I have five criteria. They call it SMART criteria, but it's different than the usual definition of SMART. So it's specific. It's meaningful. The M usually means measurable, which is nice, but I mean meaningful. Why is it important? Why is it meaningful? Action-oriented. You ask for something to be done. You ask for something that's realistic, although it could be a stretch. And then you need to have a time. What's the date by which you need to have that request fulfilled? That makes a much stronger request if you meet all five criteria. And then the last part is to figure out who you need to ask. So it's very comfortable to go to our inner circle, but our inner circle doesn't always have the answer. Or if they did, they would have shared it with you already. So you have to reach outside of that. So I have some advice on how you could do that. For example, you can go to what we call your dormant ties. A dormant tie is someone that you used to have a close relationship with, maybe somebody at work that you somebody you worked with years ago, but you haven't kept in touch with, maybe an old college roommate who had a good relationship with, but you've fallen out of touch. And the research is very clear on this, that those dormant ties are extremely valuable sources of help, that most people who are your, who are your dormant ties are very happy to hear from you and very likely to help you. And one reason they're so valuable is that their knowledge and their networks no, no longer overlap with yours because they've taken a different path in life. So they now know different things and they know different people so they can help you in many, many different ways. So one is to figure out some dormant ties you can go to. When I think about dormant ties, my mind goes directly to, again, the social networks where that would be appropriate. And that feels like something that might come through a Facebook or a LinkedIn connection, somebody you might have worked with or known years ago and then connected with on these networks, but perhaps somebody you're not in touch with on a regular basis. Absolutely. In fact, I've used LinkedIn that way where there's someone who I remember or someone I recall. I, you know, I don't have their email address. I don't have their phone number or the one I have isn't current anymore. I almost can always find them on LinkedIn and then make contact that way. And I found that people are always happy to hear from you. It's like going to your old high school reunion, you know, <laughs> is that people are generally kind of happy to see everyone again. Oh, I should mention one other method that we found very helpful. We call it the two degree method. Is which is that you might not know who to ask, but you might know someone you can ask and they might know someone. So like a friend of a friend. So I could say that, you know, I'm not sure who can help me, but I think David might know someone who can help me because David works in this area. You know, he does, you know, work with agile teams and so forth. So I'd have a question about that. You know, you might be able to put me in touch with someone if you weren't able to have to, to answer yourself. So that's very effective. And that really expands your circle of contact by going to a, a second degree connection. I could absolutely see that. And I'm curious how well this works in academia, where I think there's an impression that there's there's usually a lot of tension, a lot of competition that makes it very difficult to operate effectively in academia with your colleagues. 
Yeah, there's a, a mix of cooperation and competition, and I, I think it's healthy. But you do you do develop you know strong collegial uh, relationships with people. For example, there's times when I've needed statistical help for a research problem that I'm working on, and I, I can give you two different examples: one that didn't work and one that did. One is very early on in my career, where I needed some help solving a particular statistical problem. I looked up who was the expert on the faculty, and I went and approached that person. I actually write about this story in the book. And when I explained the problem, he rolled his eyes, shook his head, and he said, I thought everyone learned how to solve that in graduate school. It looks like you didn't, but here's how you solve the problem. (laughs) How charming. (laughs) Yes, how charming, exactly. So, you know, I, I had the answer, but I felt so disrespected in the process that my energy was depleted and I couldn't work on the project. Another time, I went to a different person who was also an expert. But his response was totally different, which was, well, that's an interesting question. And here's why. And he'd explain why it was an interesting question. He says, now let's think about how we could solve that. Now, it wasn't an interesting question to him, but his approach was someone's coming to me or asking for help. I'm going to validate them asking me. We'll talk about why it's an interesting problem and then we'll help to solve it. So with that person, I avoided the first person that I told you about. But I went back to that second person a couple of times, and we actually collaborated on a research project and co-authored a a major publication, all stemming from that ask where the person was gracious and how they received the ask, and it developed a positive relationship over time. Another thing, and I've seen this as well, is that sometimes people will develop a network that's outside their university and will ask in that network rather than their network in their home university. But it really depends from place to place. I'm very fortunate here in the in the Ross School of Business is a very positive work culture. And I wouldn't hesitate asking anyone for help. And I hope that they wouldn't hesitate asking me either. That's really good to hear. Where do you turn to for inspiration yourself these days? Like wh- whom do you read? Whom do you follow? What What information do you pull into your sphere in order to build on what you know? Well, about 18 years ago, we created the Center for Positive Organizations. You could think about positive psychology, but in a business context, in an organizational context, what that might mean. I was the first faculty director back in 2002, and I've stayed involved ever since, and I'm faculty director again now. I go to the faculty and the staff of that center for inspiration. The three founders of the center are really marvelous people who have made a very positive difference in the world. The faculty and the staff, we've created different activities and exercises that really bring out the best in people, help people to discover their strengths, figure out how to play to their strengths more often, how to recraft their jobs to make them more fulfilling and more energizing, how to help people discover their purpose, how to pick a workplace to work at where you're going to thrive, all of that. And I'm inspired day by day by the work that is done by my colleagues and the staff at the center uh, is really focused on, you know, building thriving workplaces where people are fulfilled at work and the organization produces really great outcomes. Financial outcomes would be one of them, but there's more, like uh, being a, a positive member of your community, being a good organizational citizen of making a positive social impact in the world. So I find all of that quite inspiring. That's wonderful. I would love to give you the opportunity to to name some of the people or books or inspirations that you would recommend people might be interested in finding out about. Thank you. I'll, I'll name the three founders, Jane Dutton, Kim Cameron and Bob Quinn. 
They've all written books and articles. And if you Google their names, you'll find a number of those. They're all very useful. You could also go to our Center for Positive Organizations website. Just Google that, Center for Positive Organizations, and you'll get the website, which talks about the tools and the cases, the faculty, how to contact them, the staff, and so forth. So you can find the founders and the rest of us that way as well. And it also lists all the books. And right now there's there are a lot of books that have been written by the faculty associated with the center. That's wonderful. Do these books tend to be focused toward an academic audience or are they more general mass consumption books? They're almost all meant for general consumption, for people who are working, for a business audience and beyond. And of course, we have the very traditional academic ones as well. But I think in the center, we're really focused on how do we translate the research that we know and make it useful for people in the business world. I'm guessing the book that you've written, all you have to do is ask. It's targeted at the more general audience, not not particularly at an academic audience, right? Oh, very much so. It is definitely targeted for a, for a general audience. It could be a general business audience, but it applies to anyone who wants to get better at what they're doing by learning the benefits of asking for what you need and of helping other people. Did you find it challenging uh, shifting your thinking from academic writing to a more broad writing style? You know, I used to find it difficult when I was doing research on one topic, but then writing, say, a, a general audience book on a different topic and then teaching on yet a third. What I found over time is that if I can get everything to all work together, then they mutually reinforce one another. So so I do research on this concept of generalized reciprocity, so very academic research. But I've learned lots of important things that I then can bring into the classroom and translate for my MBA students. And then translating for my MBA students helps me figure out how to express it in a book for a general audience. And so I've learned over time that it all works better if they're all feeding one another. And if they're pulling in different directions, that's trouble. That can be very de-energizing. So you're leveraging your relationship with, with your students in order to translate from that academies into something that would that anybody can understand. Yeah, so I'm a, a sociologist. My PhD is in sociology. I could have been a professor of sociology, but I've always been in a business school. I was at the University of Chicago Business School before joining the Ross School of Business at Michigan. And I've always wanted to be in a business school because I like working with people who have to put this into practice in the real world. And so I love teaching MBA students who are working full time. So I often will teach in our evening MBA program and our weekend MBA program. They're all working full time and they take classes on the weekends or at night. Because if you give them something useful, they can put it into practice right away and they can come back in next class and tell you if it worked or not. And that's really great feedback to have. And so you get to try out ideas and you try to and you get good feedback from them. You asked about sources of inspiration. I have to say my students are sources of inspiration for me as well. You know, when a student comes back and a year later, two years later says, you know, I developed this leadership action plan, putting into practice the things that you taught us to achieve this goal. And I want to let you know that it happened, that I achieved that goal. And there's not much that's more rewarding to that, to know that the research that you've been doing, that you've translated for the students has been helpful and useful in their lives. That's wonderful. And I, I imagine that working with a subject like this and putting this into effect in your life totally changed the landscape of your own social network. I'm curious how that's affected it. Oh, it definitely has. I asked for help much more freely than I did when I was growing up. Even though, you know, I mentioned that very early example with my father coaching me with that French teacher in high school, but I often found it uh, difficult to ask for help. I've never had trouble asking for directions, even before Google Maps. I have to say that that's true. <laughs> Although my dad would never ask for directions. I always said, look, I just want to get there. So I'll ask for directions. I'll do that. Uh, but it's made a difference in doing that. And it's also enabled me in my role as a faculty director of our center is that I could bring some of these practices back to the center uh, to help in, in running the center itself. 
That's terrific. So I'm, I'm sure people are going to be curious, not only to find out about how they can get involved with reciprocity rings and with your company, but also to find out your book and find out more about your writing and your speaking. Where should I send people to find out more about it? The best place to go would be all you have to do is ask.com. You'll learn about the book, learn about me. You get to take this free assessment, whether you purchase the book or not. And there's also a link to our company, Give and Take Inc., but you could also go directly there if you wanted to learn about uh, the Givitas platform, and that would be giveandtakeinc.com. So those two websites. Terrific. Well, thank you, Dr. Baker. It's been a pleasure meeting you, and thank you for being on the show and sharing all of this with my audience. Oh, my pleasure, David. I've really appreciated the opportunity. Thank you. Are you glad you listened to this episode of Hack the Process? Then take an action now. Make a note about something you just heard and how it's going to help you as you hack your own process. And let me know about it. This has been M. David Green, your host for Hack the Process. You can tweet me at Hack the Process, leave a review for the show on iTunes, and visit hacktheprocess.com to check out the show notes for this episode and join our community of process hackers. Thanks for listening. <laughs>